0: Welcome to New Books in Historical Fiction. I'm your host, C.P. Leslie, and today I'm talking with Karen Engelman, the author of The Stockholm Octavo, published by Echo Books in October 2012. This book has an unusual historical setting, Stockholm in the years between 1789 and 1792, a period when the Swedish king, Gustav III, was simultaneously trying to protect the French monarchs Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette from the consequences of the revolution in France and to prevent a similar uprising in his own land. With this interview, I'm also introducing a new element into the new books in historical fiction format. Because novels depend so much on the writing itself, in addition to characters' plot, setting, and theme, I will begin each interview by reading a few paragraphs from the first chapter to give listeners a sense of the book. So without more ado, here are the opening paragraphs of the Stockholm Octavo. CHAPTER One, Stockholm, 1789 Stockholm is called the Venice of the North, and with good reason. Travelers claim that it is just as complex, just as grand, and just as mysterious as its sister to the South. Reflected in icy Lake Mälaren and the intricate waterways of the Baltic Sea are grand palaces, straw-yellow townhouses, graceful bridges, and lively skiffs carrying the population among the fourteen islands that make up the city. But rather than expanding outward into a sunny, cultivated Italy, the deep forests that surround this glittering archipelago create a Viridian boundary full of wolves and other wild things that mark the entry to an ancient country and the brutal peasant life that lies just beyond the town. But standing at the brink of the century's final decade and the last years of His Majesty King Gustav III's enlightened reign, I rarely thought of the countryside or its scattered, scavenging population. The town had too much to offer, and life seemed filled with opportunity. It's true that at first glance it did not appear to be the best of times. Farm animals resided in many of the houses, sod roofs moldered in disrepair, and one could not miss the pox scars, phlegmy coughs, or other myriad signs of illness that tormented the populace. The funeral bells sounded at all hours, for death was more at home in Stockholm than in any other city of Europe. The stench of raw sewage, spoiled food, and unwashed bodies tainted the air. But alongside this grim tableau, one could glimpse a light blue watered silk jacket, embroidered with golden birds. Hear the rustle of a taffeta gown and fragments of French poetry, and inhale the scent of rose pomade and eau de cologne, drifting by on the same breeze that carried a melody by Bach, Bellman, or Krauss, the true hallmarks of the Gustavian age. I wanted that golden era to last forever. Its finale would be unforgettable, but most everyone missed the beginning of the end. This was not so surprising. People expected violence served up with a revolution, America, Holland, and France being freshly carved examples. But that February night, when our own quiet revolution began, the town was calm, the streets nearly deserted, and I was playing cards at Mrs. Sparrow's. And here, to tell us who was speaking... Who Mrs. Sparrow is and what is going on in the town and the revolution against King Gustav is Karen Engelman. Hi, Karen. Hello, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. How are
1: things going with you? Well, actually, things are going well. I'm kind of winding down from my book tour and heading into the holidays, which I hope we'll be relaxing. I think we'll be relaxing. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a great fall for me, actually. So I have a, I, I feel good.
0: Wonderful. Um, for our listeners, I'm talking today with Karen Engelman, who is the author of The Stockholm Octavo, a novel which I absolutely loved and highly recommend. And uh, it's not only I who loved it. She got a rave review in the New York Times Book Review on December 9th. That is the previous, not this past Sunday, but the one before that. And the reviewer, Suzanne Kokel, I hope I'm saying that correctly, described it as a deliciously sly first novel in which fortune lies behind each turn of the cards. The story opens in 1789 when America, Holland, and France have led the way into bloody revolution. But in the chilly northeastern kingdom of Sweden, plots to overthrow the current monarch will be carried out among card-crazy gamblers and wielders of that most esoteric instrument of flirtation, the lady's fan. <laughs> Congratulations, Karen. <laughs> thank
1: you. It's a deliciously sly review, too, I have to say. I was, I was thrilled. Beautifully written and, and, and uh, yeah, a, a, wonderful, a wonderful treat for me. So thank you, Suzanne.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't get better than that. Um yeah. and the novel is, I will agree, deliciously sly and fascinating. Um but before we get to the novel itself, could you please tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, what took you to Stockholm and um uh, sure. how you got here.
1: Yeah, it's it's a little improbable actually. I um I was born and raised in Iowa and uh my my background or my interest uh, growing up and through my college days was fine arts, and so I studied illustration and uh, eventually design, and I got a BFA from the University of Iowa, famous for its writer's workshop, of course, but I didn't even get close to those hallowed halls. Um, So I was in the art department, and um, uh, I was working in a design studio in Iowa City upon graduation, and then I became interested in um, theater design. I was through a, a friend of mine who was working at the time as a professor, and I started taking some theater classes and um we had a visiting professor from the stockholm opera, uh, the stockholm opera house and he was a scene painter wonderful talented guy very eccentric but i was eager to do something different i kind of wanted to get out of iowa and in the meantime i had fallen madly in love with um, this friend of mine who uh, had been in Sweden previously and we decided to have a little adventure. And I made a plan to go and do some independent study at the Stockholm Opera House with this visiting professor. And the intention was to stay for three months and then come back. And I went over. Unbeknownst to me, this professor had become very ill And this was pre-cell phone days and pre-internet days. So I just, and plus he was, as I said, kind of eccentric anyway, so he probably wouldn't have called me. But uh, I ended up not studying theater. My boyfriend came over and we ended up staying in Sweden for nine years. Now, I never lived in Stockholm, but I landed in Stockholm. And that was my first encounter with a European city at all. I'd never been to Europe before. And I landed in Stockholm on midsummer, which is a big holiday. The sun is up pretty much 23 hours of the day. Everybody is in a festive mood. And the city of Stockholm is so beautiful at any time of year. But If you can imagine this kind of summer festival and all the water everywhere, Um, it's a city of islands. It was absolutely magical, and I completely fell in love. Um, The old town of the city, which is so beautifully preserved, is transporting. And uh, it made a very, very deep impression on me, obviously. So much later, after I returned to the States... I became interested in writing and I was still working as a, a designer. I worked you know, commercially in New York City for Macy's department store and I did a lot of, of Sotheby's. I did a lot of design work for various uh, people, but I was becoming more and more interested in writing. And after a number of years, I decided to get very serious about it and my thoughts took me back to that time in Sweden that I had spent there, and Stockholm as a city, and I began to explore some of the history of Sweden, which I hadn't at all touched on during my during my time there. Um, and I just became completely fascinated with the Gustavian period, which is probably... Sweden's favorite period too. There's a lot of information about it. People still talk about it, read about it, make movies about it. So there's there's a lot of a lot of there's a lot of research material to delve into and um I just got hooked and decided to create this story that would bring together a lot of my interests, a lot of my background and um so I went back to graduate school in order to get some help with this project and get some deadlines because I like deadlines work very well for me. And uh, so in 2005, I I entered an MFA program and the Stockholm Octava was my master's thesis.
0: Wonderful. Um, Stockholm is almost a character in in the book, really. I mean, it's the old town is so much a part of everything that's going on. Uh, for our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, could you give us a sense of what was going on in the Gustavian period that makes it so exciting and also a sense of what's going on in your book? Maybe start with the, the very basics of the plot. I don't want to spoil anything for readers. But- oh, sure. Um, well, the, the
1: plot centers around Emil Larson. He is a customs officer, a sort of low-level bureaucrat, and an avid card player living in Stockholm at the end of the 18th century. And the book, as Carolyn said, opens in 1789. And about this time, Emil feels like his life has finally taken a turn for the better. He's had a very um, rough background. Um, He's basically an orphan who pulled himself up out of nothing and has, by the time the book gets going, managed to purchase himself this position because you could buy your job in those days. And he likes his job very much. He can work alone, which is one of the other things he likes. He has no personal attachments or obligations to anybody, so he can basically do whatever he likes. He's a very self-satisfied bachelor. He has also, through his card-playing skills, managed to become a trusted regular in the gaming rooms of one Mrs. Sophia Sparrow, another card shark, who has taken Emil as her gaming partner. Now, Mrs. Sparrow is also a fortune teller. She has cards everywhere in her life. And among others uh, of her clients is King Goose of the Third. And the other thing that uh, makes Emil's life so happy for him is that he feels he's living in the capital city during Sweden's golden age, which is the reign of King Gustav III. So his life is near perfect as far as he's concerned. And of course, this perfection is ruined or threatened, I should say, when his superior at work announces that the gentleman in his office must be married if they want to maintain their jobs. Now, Emil's had absolutely no intention of being married, but He desperately wants to hang on to this job, so he sets out to find a suitable wife, come what may. A couple days after this pronouncement, he's playing cards with Mrs. Sparrow, and she announces that she's had a vision on his behalf. It's a vision of love and connection. Well, of course, Emile is absolutely fascinated by the coincidence of this. And Mrs. Sparrow offers to lay an octavo for him. And the, an octavo is a fortune telling spread. It's eight cards that reveal eight people who will play a significant role in an event in a seeker's life. And if the seeker can find these eight people in time, they can push the event in the direction of their choosing and help to achieve this Love and connection, a golden path to love and connection. So Emile sets out to find his eight. And uh, instead of finding a lovely girl with a nice dowry who's going to pull him up the social ladder a couple of rungs, he gets caught between two powerful female antagonists, both of whom are members of his octavo. One of them is a baroness known as the Uzon. And the other is his very own Mrs. Sparrow. And the antagonism between the two of them is more political than personal. The Uzan is a member of the disenchanted aristocracy who wishes to see Gustav III overthrown at any cost. And Mrs. Sparrow is a fervent royalist who is a friend and supporter of the king and will do just about anything to see him remain on the throne. So Emile, trying to find marriage, finds himself caught between these two political oppositions, and that's where the story really takes off.
0: It certainly does. Uh, before we go on and talk more specifically about what it is that Gustav has done, um, could you uh, – I I read some of the opening passages of your story uh, in my introduction, but if you could perhaps uh, give us some insight into the Uzan, she's a very interesting character.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The Uzan um, is a uh, a baroness, so she's a member of the aristocracy. And while she's not based on a historical figure, uh, the women of Gustav's court were very... Powerful. He called them the Fifth Estate. And the book, as uh, we said, opens in 1789 when Gustav III initiated some reform in the government that gave uh, rights to commoners. And what this meant was that those same rights were being taken away from the aristocracy. And of course, they were completely. Um, Furious with this, and they 'd been furious with gustav for for many years, actually since he pretty much took took office or took his took his crown and um, At the time that this act was uh, passed by the by the parliament, the aristocracy tried to protest, and Gustav had an, a significant number of them uh, imprisoned so part of my fiction is that the Uzan's husband Henrik is one of these imprisoned um, aristocrats and subsequently dies. So not only does Uzon have politics and the return of the rule to the aristocracy where it should be is according to her, but she also has a revenge in her mind. Uh, she has revenge feelings against Gustav for the death of her husband. And she will use her lady's tools to get this, which is to say her sex appeal, um, her position in society, and her folding fan, which she uses as a tool, and in this case, a weapon.
0: Yeah, one of the things I particularly liked about the book is that it has very powerful women who are not historical anachronisms. One of the problems for women writers, at least I find this, is that many women in the past are by our standards passive or uh, or at least they appear to be had the society wanted them to be mm-hmm. and yet women often did exert power in but in very traditional ways, and so the Uzan exercises hers in part by running this um, almost like a seminar for young women yes yes. Yeah. <laughs> whom she is, in fact, molding into her, I think we could call them political tools, because most of them don't realize, I think, that they're being used. And Sophia Sparrow also, you know, through her use of the cards and her use of fortune-telling, expresses a kind of female power without her being out, you know, manning the barricades for the vote or something that would be completely inappropriate to 1789 Sweden.
1: Well, exactly. And uh, in fact, you know, Sweden at the time, many of the innkeepers and, and uh, people that ran taverns were wi- women, oftentimes widows. But they, you know, they ran those businesses. And, uh, you know, there were women that were working in journalism. They're working working as artists. They were working in shops and in trades. But yes, the char- I didn't want the characters to seem out of place for their time. And uh, so, yeah, it's about using the tools that you have at your disposal. In this case, cards and fans for those two.
0: You have a wonderful description of the Uzan in your book. Um, would you like to read it for us? or I would it- love to. I
1: would love to. Please. Um, yeah, this is um, just a little introduction that uh, Emil Larson is giving. Let me tell you about the Uzon She had been baptized Christina Elizabeth Louisa Jyllandpalm, and while all those names had regal implications, they were never used. As a child, she was addressed as young mistress. After her marriage, madame. But in conversation, she was called the Uzon, perhaps because there could only be one. The Uzan was a collector of folding fans. She had first become fascinated with fans at the age of 15, when she witnessed a cousin exactly her age, but neither as rich nor beautiful, captivate an entire salon with her artful fluttering. The Uzan, still young mistress then, convinced the cousin to instruct her in this arresting language. These signals were known to men and women alike. And as with any language, the more you practiced, the more you could express. Soon, the student's skills exceeded those of her teacher. Snaps, drops, turns of the wrist, taps, flutters, and long, languorous strokes all filled the gap left by the unspeakable words of desire. The Yuzan knew which angle to hold the fan over her breasts if she did or did not want to be thought a courtesan, and how a certain look cast over a half-folded fan could bring any man to her side. Society clamored for the Uzan's presence at salons and balls. The jealous cousin attempted revenge, pairing the Uzan with a common dolt at the spring cotillion. So the Uzan took on the persona of tender matchmaker, and signaled her cousin's status as eager virgin to an epileptic Finnish earl ready to fill the empty trough of his marriage bed. The Uzan shed the prettiest of crocodile tears as she waved goodbye to her cousin sailing for Obu, a hideous village that served as Finland's capital city. The Uzan had found her weapon.
0: That's great. Um, I think one of the things that non historians particularly may not realize is that you know nowadays folding fans are things they hand out in Chinese restaurants basically, <laughs> and just opening one with a snap I mean it's way beyond my skill level, I can tell you so um. Could you explain a little bit more about how you got into folding fans? I mean, they they exist in part because it's a, it's not really a repressed society in the sense that Victorian society is repressed, but there are lots of things that go unsaid. In you know, they they're not spoken openly; they're spoken secretly, in effect, through these fans.
1: Well, there are many signals that the fans give. I think on a on a surface level, they were an indicator of your. Wealth of your status um, in the late eighteenth century, it was kind of the heyday of the handmade fans this was This was before mass produced fans had started to come into uh, the hands of common people so fans were handmade they were oftentimes incredibly intricate and made with very very valuable materials, jewels ivory swan skin. Um, The workmanship was incredibly detailed. So just by nature of the fan that you held, you could indicate whether you were wealthy, whether you had been to Paris or Spain or Italy. Um, the, The size of your fan, how wide it opened would indicate whether it was last year's fan or this year's fan or a fan from a decade ago. Um, They were, so they, they had a lot to say about an owner's status and, and travel and taste and, and, and even their affiliations. You know, if you had an English fan, perhaps you were considered a little daring because England was not popular with Sweden at the time, for example. But anyway, fans indicated that, but then they were also used, as you said, for, Communicating, I mean literally communicating, and there is uh, something known as the language of the fan. now this is never documented officially in any books at the time, but it was written about as early as i don 't know seventeen early early eighteenth century seventeen eleven there 's a very funny, famous essay by Addison in the British and the English Spectator that makes a lot of fun of the way women use their fans. And although the society wasn't repressed, there wasn't a a level of propriety that you had to, um, you know, pay attention to. And so you couldn't express your desires so, so openly. And the fans served as a tool. There were gestures that you used that were understood. And they could be as simple as, you know, I love you or I hate you to, you know, come with me or follow me here or I'll meet you at this time or whatever. And uh, while I think the signals were probably different in each culture and different perhaps in each city, um, it was a convenient way to um, have some fun. And I think that they were most often used for flirtation and romance. But, uh, you know, they could be used for other things, which is what I have the Uzan doing in my book. (laughs)
0: Uh, Yes, and the the fans themselves are not just props. I mean, I won't go into some of the other things that she uses them for, because I don't want to spoil your story. But the the fans have names. They're referred to as she. Um, they, They have a distinct presence in the story. So there is a fan, Cassiopeia, which is the Uzan's, almost an extension of the Uzan.
1: Yes, um, you know, I I think because they were so valuable and so intricate and beautiful um, that I I gave them names and these personalities, and I I got this idea from a fan collector that I I spoke with in the course of my research, and she referred to all her fans with the pre- feminine pronoun and. You know, while she didn't have names, I didn't think it would be a stretch to actually give a name to your fan. It's almost like a pet or a car, and people often name those things that they have a, a, a deep attachment to. And something that you carry in your hand probably, maybe even every day or certainly often during the week because, you know, as a, as a proper lady, you would carry a folding fan. You didn't have a handbag at the time, but you definitely had your fan. And I, I think learning how it feels, how to use it, how to open and close it. I mean, they're all a little bit different. The action on them all is a little bit different, you know, the length and how the weight and everything else that
0: you say, it becomes kind
1: of so, uh, Naming it is not a stretch.
0: Uh, No, uh, it's not. And in fact, Cassiopeia is so important that when she is lost in a a card game, Sophia Sparrow actually takes her to a fanmaker to have her reconstructed in in order to uh, undercut the Azan's power. And this brings us to the other big topic in the, the story, which is magic. And fortune telling and I definitely don't want to let you go without learning more about the octavo and where that comes from and what it means in the context of the story
1: well magic in the late 18th century was an everyday part of life Uh, people believed very very much in magical powers there were magicians in most of the courts and astrologers and people believed in elves and witches and other worldly things. I mean, even uh, King Gustav was famous for this. He and his brother attended seances and they had an alchemist uh, trying to turn base materials into gold to fill the royal coffers. And they were very much engaged in the Freemasons, which were had some esoteric and Sort of magical rites. And so magic was a big, big part of life. And fortune telling was also a a big part of life, although people used lots of different methods. um, They used uh, coffee grounds and tea leaves, but they also used cards. And card uh cartomancy, or fortune-telling with cards, really came into its own in the in this period as well, which is what served as an inspiration for the Octavo. But in France, in the late 18th century, was when the first book was published about fortune-telling with cards. And it was published by a gentleman who went under the pen name of Etiela. And he used a, a piquet deck, which is a, a deck of 32 cards, but they just playing cards. And then a little later on, another French gentleman uh, by the name of Antoine Cord de gabellin i would probably mispronouncing his name, but he took a deck of uh, Italian playing cards called, for, for a game called the Tarocci, and he came up with the idea of tarot, which is still with us in such a huge way. So... Since Mrs. Sparrow, my character, was French by birth and was already a card player, um, her medium seemed to be, um, cards would prove to be a perfect tool for her to use. And she uses another deck of regular playing cards. It's a German deck, but it's a 52-card deck, similar to the ones that we would use. It has four suits, although the suits are a bit different and the organization of the cards is different. There's still ace through 10, and then uh, the four court cards, but they're organized a little bit differently. But uh, she uses this deck of cards to lay her octavo, and the octavo, in a way, is similar to tarot. You have a a signif- I think it's called a significator. That's the person who I call the seeker, the person who is asking for their fortune to be told. And around the seeker, you place these eight cards. What's different than tarot uh, is that tarot it deals more with abstract things. There's a lot of abstracts in tarot like Strength and justice and death, and so on and so forth, whereas the Octavo deals simply with human characters. And the Octavo deck is so well suited for this, and it was a deck that I found in the course of my research. It's a 16th century deck, so it's a little bit earlier, but on each card, human characteristics are portrayed. They're either portrayed through images of people. Uh, some of them are through images of animals, and uh, which I think is actually hilarious. And so they suit Mrs. Sparrow's idea of the eight people very well. So you can look at the cards and look at the symbols on the cards and the numbers that are on the cards and really get a clear picture of who this person might be.
0: And in the book, we can actually see these cards. I mean, one of the lovely things about the book, I thought, was that it it makes it very easy to go back and follow. Because one of the fun things about the book was to try to figure out who these people are. And it keeps changing over the course of the book. And you think you know because Emil thinks he knows and then he realizes that it might be someone else. But as these things happen and a new character comes in and he's thinking, oh, this is... They, they all have names, you know, the prisoner, the, the companion, the, the seeker, the key, the prize, and so on and so forth. You can go back into the book and find the design and find the laid out image of the octavo and say, oh, that's what that card looked like.
1: Yeah, I thought that was an incredibly important part of the book. And I feel lucky to be doing my book at a time when, you know, printing and design capabilities allow for that. Um, I get, you know, partly because I have a design background, too. I used the visuals as a way, as a means of figuring out for myself to oh sorry <laughs> my computer um, as a way of figuring out what would happen in the story, so I did oh, uh, hundreds of diagrams and laid the cards out in different ways and had different cards and who would this be and you know so it was it was a process but it was in to, in a, lar- to a large extent it was a visual process in terms of figuring that out so I was thrilled that those uh, diagrams and cards could be included in the book because they they say a lot, so yeah i'm I'm happy that you appreciated them
0: and did you do the diagrams yourself, the ones that were in the book, or did someone else do that during the publishing process?
1: No, I did all the diagrams I mean the cards I was able to get a beautiful images from the Yale Library. They have a collection of these cards there, and then I did the, all the designs for the diagrams, and um, I actually did the timeline too, which I really like. but the design of the book, the actual interior design of the book, and the typefaces and everything uh, that was um beautifully done by the echo design team, so that was uh, but I did do
0: the diagrams because oh my goodness, I spent a lot of time on those. The design of the book is gorgeous. I actually did a blog post specifically around that on the beauty of book design, uh, because I think self-publishers and indie publishers don't really appreciate how much work goes into just composing a book, you know, choosing the type and all of that. And the timeline is great, too. Uh, one of the things that is in the book, which is a particularly lovely design element, is that at the opening of each chapter, the there is a line, the first few words are then um, reproduced in a script font that looks like an 18th century handwriting and it's you know light gray and it runs behind the the opening type which is just a beautiful element it really brings the the period of the story to light
1: oh i agree i love all that stuff and when i first saw that design i just thought oh my goodness this designer really understood and read the book and felt the period and i just i was over the moon really it was it was so wonderful so yeah um couldn't be better and also the opening of each section of the book and it was so i don't all of it was so well handled i just i i couldn't be happier and the cover too which i yeah
0: the cover is gorgeous and that you can see those cards uh in color on the cover which is particularly nice touch
1: yeah because the cards were actually drawn in black and white and printed in black and white and so um To have there are color editions of these cards that exist, but they were all hand colored, of course, at the time they weren't, you know, machine colored. So, um, yeah, it's fun to have them in color.
0: It is the other thing about the octavos that I think we should really talk about is that they overlap uh, because they're because they relate to real people in effect, each person has his or her own octavo. And by the end of the book, I was actually casting octavos mentally for the characters. That's how caught up I was in it. But I think we should talk about that a little bit, because Mrs. Sparrow and Emile's octavos are quite clearly linked.
1: Yes, yes. And that is the Stockholm octavo of the title. Um, Mrs. Sparrow, after she's laid Emile's octavo, she feels the need to lay an octavo for her own and this is inspired by events that are happening in France the um, the French royals attempt their escape and are captured at Varennes. Sweden is involved in that a lot of people may or may not know that but Axel von Ferschen, who is a, a Swedish count was sent by Gustav to help with this rescue and Gustav himself went to meet the escaped royals. He was so sure the plan was going to work. And Mrs. Sparrow sees all this happening and she realizes, oh, she has to lay her own octavo, which she does. And there are some similar cards, but it's a big city. It's a big world. And there's only 52 cards in the deck. So she doesn't think about the fact that there may be an overlap until later. And then she realizes that, Emil's octavo and hers are linked, and in order for one to succeed, the other must succeed, and they need to help each other. So that's where they overlap. And at, at a certain point in writing the book, I got very carried away, and I was laying like a third octavo on top of these two, and then I thought, oh, maybe I could lay one. And it just got completely out of hand, but it's a little addictive. So, but I, I decided to keep it to the to the two of them, and they nicely form by the way, a number eight. So it all connects.
0: And talk about eight. I'm in your press kit. It mentioned that eight has a specific significance for you as a person. Well, you know, it's one
1: of those weird things that
0: it's, I I like to think that
1: it's been waiting for me since birth. And I, I was born on the eighth and I'm one of eight children. And, um, I've, carried with me since my college days, a large brass key ring with the number eight stamped on it. And I have no idea why, but I liked it. I liked the number eight. I'm, I mean, it was a design student, so I thought it was a beautiful number. And that's probably why I liked the key ring. Um, and then later on in life, I was told by a numerologist that my soul's urge was the number eight. So I don't know. All, of course I never thought about these things until I began thinking about doing this project and it started out as a design project. I wasn't, you know, I I, I don't think I trusted my own abilities as a writer to do a novel. So I was thinking of more, uh, I don't know, a design book with some text and, I thought of it in terms of eight-page signatures. In the old days, a book was always made in signatures, and a signature had eight pages. So any book had to have a number of pages that were divisible by eight. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to have this book with eight characters, and they each get, you know, a signature or maybe two signatures, and the signatures are eight pages, and well, this eight, eight, eight. And then I started looking into what the number eight meant. And uh, it's it was all fascinating to me. You know, it's a weird number that most people outside of China or Asia don't think about too much. Certainly in Western culture, it doesn't have a lot of uh, meaning that we think about every day. But in esoteric literature, it refers to rebirth and resurrection. And so all of this kind of, cooked together and became part of Mrs. Sparrow's idea for the octavo because her, her belief is that the octavo, the significant event in an oct- that would inspire the laying of an octavo is of such great importance that it would lead to a sort of rebirth for the seeker. So that's where all of these things came together.
0: Well, the other thing about eight is it's basically the infinity symbol. And you see that at the back of the book, in addition to all these other things, there is a series of overlapping octavos joined with these circles. And you can see the the, um, the eights, in effect, spinning out into yeah. infinity. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: No, I had great fun with that and uh, sort of thinking about, well, you know, the effect that one person's choice has on other people and it's a ripple effect it kind of goes out and out in, infin, into infinity as you say and uh you know so that was just a yeah that was a fun idea that's but that's really at the core of the book you know how who is around us who are the people around us and how we all affect each other and that's something that emile has to learn in the course of the book
0: and really, that's his journey of love and connection. I mean, we think of love as being romantic love, and that's certainly an element in the book, but it's really the much, at the beginning, he's very isolated, I and mean, he's got life exactly where he wants it. And his idea of connection is to go into a gambling parlor, which was, <laughs> you know, pretty typical of 18th century Europe. But he doesn't, even there, he's, you know, he's working with Mrs. Sparrow. He doesn't really interact with the other people there as, as, humans you know that
1: exactly exactly so yes he has a big lesson to learn and um you know it's one that i guess i can say that i've ha- had to learn in my own life in some ways too so um yeah it's it's a it's a nice journey for him and it, it, it does take a turn you do think that people might imagine that the book is about this marriage plot or whatever or this kind of romantic farce and um yeah it, it it takes a different turn for sure
0: and one of the um i won't say whether it's romantic or non-romantic i'll let people find out but one of the characters we haven't talked about but who is certainly part of emile's journey is a young woman named joanna bloom or joanna gray right when we first meet her could you tell us a little bit about her
1: Yes, uh Johanna Gray is a young woman who is from the n- city called Yevla, uh, which is a little bit north of Stockholm. It was you know a fairly important city at the time, but you know important to consider the the time period as well. It was a, a small city. Um, Johanna is raised in a family. her father is a an apothecary her mother is a very devout religious woman and has um her mother has put some very strong restrictions on the family and they are only allowed to wear gray clothing they are to be devout but johanna has been educated because her father needs help in his shop so she's been given um lessons in reading writing latin she knows french uh she can compound tinctures and and herbal medicines she knows her her herbology so she's fairly well educated and she she likes her work but her mother decides that she's it's time for her to be married and so arranges a marriage with a loathsome character in the town and Johanna rather than be stuck in this life decides that She is going to run away and she leaves for the town or Stockholm and uh, she's going to try to make her way. No easy task, but she feels like she has some skills and she has a connection there who is another uh, connection to Emil and that's master Frederick Lind. And so she falls on his, um, you know, to his, to seek his help and it is Master Frederick Lind who finds a position for Johanna Gray with the Uzan. So they all begin to connect and the Uzan is delighted. Johanna is kind of a diamond in the rough that she can groom and who can also serve her very well with her apothecary knowledge, compounding sleeping powders and other things. So uh, yeah, Johanna You don't, Emile's not sure he meets her in a tavern and then meets her again at the Uzan, but at the Uzan's house, but he's not sure it's the same person. She looks completely different. She's been well-dressed. She's gotten, you know, she's been well-fed. And um, so the game between the two of them begins.
0: I think also it may not be clear to people that uh, apothecaries used to do a great deal more than you would get now at your local pharmacy. So even today in Russia, if you want to buy herbs, you go to the local, they don't go, it's apothecary actually, it's exactly an you know, apothecary shop. Um So herbs and medicines and poisons were all kind of along the same area of interest you know if you wanted to poison some rats you went to the apothecaries if you (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and you know they had
1: all kinds of quack medicines and they you could buy leeches there you know so if you needed to be you know have have you, and uh, all kinds of – so there was one really interesting thing that was sold up until the middle of the 20th century in, in Denmark. You could still find it. But they sold ground-up mummy powder. They would get mummies from Egypt dried and grind them into a powder. And then you would ingest that for, uh, I don't know what, probably everything. <laughs> probably virility and you know i I have no idea but lots of crazy things that you could buy in these stores but you're absolutely right i mean um and also if you think about most medicines or even if you think about um oh now now i'm uh no, I'm actually I'm forgetting the word, but sometimes it's about the dosage. If you – you Digitalis, for example, is an herbal medicine that can be very dangerous, but it's still used, and it's all about how you dose it. Um, it's used for heart medicine, and it was used even then for, for different things. And so you would go to this apothecary and buy your Digitalis or even Henbane or some of these things that were very dangerous, but if they're used in the right amount, they can be very helpful. So um, – yeah, apothecaries were kind of strange and wonderful places.
0: Yes, and medicine of course was very different then. I mean, you would probably be better off at the apothecary even if you ended up taking too much henbane than you would be calling in the local doctor.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: The surgeons were
1: frightening. So, yes, I think that's true. Herbal medicine was a, a much safer <laughs> <than my laughs>
0: bet. Um, well, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Uh, before we leave, I'd love to hear what you're working on now.
1: Oh, you know, I
0: have a, a very, very messy, crazy
1: first draft of something quite different. It's set in late 20th century. And the what fans are to the Stockholm Octavo greeting cards are to this new project, which does not have a name yet. But... Um, It's the story of a a young woman who loves greeting cards, but it's kind of her secret passion. And she ends up in a class about how to create greeting cards with a rather unusual teacher. So that's all I can say, but I'm having a ton of fun with it. So.
0: Great I can't wait to read more about it, and uh, hopefully have you come back and talk to us about the new book um before I let you go are you you're in the middle of book tours at the moment right? Are there places that you will be going that you would like to let people know about
1: Well, I have um a couple of events in January that would be open to the public one is one is in Vermont at Goddard College where i um got my mfa it's in plainfield vermont so it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere but it's that's on january 7th i'm doing a reading and discussion uh, i have an event at the brooklyn library on january 17th and that's in the afternoon and I'm, i apologize i don't have the time uh, and i oh i'm sorry january 17th is in wilton connecticut at the library in wilton connecticut january 26th is at the brooklyn library And I'm going to be at Bookmania in Florida uh, in February 2nd. And then late in February, I have an event in Sleepy Hollow, New York with a Bellman singer. I'm so excited. She sings period music by Carl Michael Bellman, who was a favorite of king gustav and quite a character in his own right so all of that information is on my website which is uh karen engelman.com and much more so i would i would love to have readers come and i would love to meet them
0: Excellent. Uh, Those dates are all in 2013, by the way, so just in case you get this podcast sometime later, um, you'll know that they were gone. But I'm sure if there are future events, they will also be on Karen's uh, website. And one thing, as you were mentioning, I don't know that we ever said explicitly that what King Gustave did to get on the bad side of the Uzan and the rest of them was that he was trying to avoid uh, having a French revolution in his own backyard, basically, and he decided to make sure that the bourgeoisie was satisfied. And so he extended rights to commoners, uh, which did not really disenfranchise the aristocracy, but made them feel like they were being disenfranchised. And therefore they went into opposition because they wanted things back the old way. Did I get that right?
1: Exactly right. He saw the writing on the wall. He he loved his aristocracy, but he knew that something had to change. And he did and paid a very high price for it. So.
0: But he did actually avert the revolution. In other words, his his um, his idea was correct, but it was not. Uh, it didn't work very well for him personally. Correct. Correct. Karen, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your talking to us today, and I wish you all best of luck. Carolyn, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> for me also. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to New Books in Historical Fiction. I'm your host, C.P. Leslie. And today I've been talking to Karen Engelman about her wonderful new book, The Stockholm Octavo.